a journal of the plague year, being observations or memorials of the most remarkable occurrences, as well public as private, which happened in London during the last great visitation in 1665, written by a citizen who continued all the while in London, never made public before. Episode 32 Here is more on how the decline in the mortality rate put the people of London, quote, past all admonitions, unquote. As in the last episode, the author chronicles the city's return to the usual vices and immoralities once the danger was perceived to have passed, which it had not, and the failure of all attempts to lessen the chances of reinfection. One of the more moving notes in the episode could almost pass unnoticed, so little emphasis is it given, as he describes how people returning from the countryside found entire families of their acquaintance wiped out, so stricken by the plague that there was no remembrance of them and no trace of their belongings. At the end of the episode, Defoe describes the premature relocation of certain mass graves. I wish I could say that as the city had a new face, so the manners of the people had a new appearance. I doubt not but that there were many retained a sincere sense of their deliverance and were that heartily thankful to that sovereign hand that had protected them in so dangerous a time. It would be very uncharitable to judge otherwise in a city so populous, and where the people were so devout as they were here in the time of the visitation itself. But except what of this was to be found in particular families and faces, it must be acknowledged that the general practice of the people was just as it was before, and very little difference was to be seen. Some, indeed, said things were worse, that the morals of the people declined from this very time, that the people, hardened by the danger they had been in, like seamen after a storm is over, were more wicked and more stupid, more bold and hardened in their vices and immoralities than they were before. But I will not carry it so far neither. It would take up a history of no small length to give a particular of all the gradations by which the course of things in this city came to be restored again, and to run in their own channel as they did before. Some parts of England were now infected as violently as London had been. The cities of Norwich, Peterborough, Lincoln, Colchester and other places were now visited, and the magistrates of London began to set rules for our conduct as to corresponding with those cities. It is true we could not pretend to forbid their people coming to London, because it was impossible to know them asunder. So, after many consultations, the Lord Mayor and Court of Aldermen were obliged to drop it. All they could do was to warn and caution the people not to entertain in their houses or converse with any people who they knew came from such infected places. But they might as well have been talking to the air, for the people of London thought themselves so plague-free now that they were past all admonitions. They seemed to depend upon it that the air was restored, and that the air was like a man that had had the smallpox, not capable of being infected again. This revived that notion that the infection was all in the air, that there was no such thing as contagion from the sick people to the sound, 
and so strongly did this whimsy prevail among people that they all ran together promiscuously, sick and well. Not even the Mohammedans, who, prepossessed with the principle of predestination, value nothing of contagion, let it be in what it will, could be more obstinate than the people of London. They that were perfectly sound and came out of the wholesome air, as we call it, into the city, made nothing of going into the same houses and chambers, nay, even into the same beds, but those that had the distemper upon them and were not recovered. Some, indeed, paid for their audacious boldness with the price of their lives. An infinite number fell sick, and the physicians had more work than ever, only with this difference, that more of their patients recovered, that is to say, they generally recovered, but certainly there were more people infected and fell sick now, when there did not die above a thousand or twelve hundred in a week, than there was when there died five or six thousand a week. So entirely negligent were the people at that time in the great and dangerous case of health and infection. And so ill were they able to take or accept the advice of those who cautioned them for their good. The people being thus returned, as it were, in general, it was very strange to find that in their inquiring after their friends, some whole families were so entirely swept away that there was no remembrance of them left. Neither was anybody to be found to possess or show any title to that little they had left, for in such cases what was to be found was generally embezzled and purloined, some gone one way, some another. It was said such abandoned effects came to the king as the universal heir, upon which we are told, and I suppose it was in part true, that the king granted all such as deodans to the Lord Mayor and Court of Aldermen of London, to be applied to the use of the poor, of whom there were very many. For it is to be observed that, although the occasions of relief and the objects of distress were very many more in the time of the violence of the plague than now, after it was all over, yet the distress of the poor was more now a great deal than it was then, because all the sluices of general charity were now shut. People supposed the main occasion to be over, and so stopped their hands, whereas particular objects were still very moving and the distress of those that were poor was very great indeed. Though the health of the city was now very much restored, yet foreign trade did not begin to stir. Neither would foreigners admit our ships into their ports for a great while. As for the Dutch, the misunderstandings between our court and them had broken out into a war the year before, so that our trade that way was wholly interrupted. But Spain and Portugal... Italy and Barbary, as also Hamburg and all the ports in the Baltic, these were all shy of us a great while, and would not restore trade with us for many months. The distemper sweeping away such multitudes, as I have observed, many if not all the out-parishes were obliged to make new burying grounds, besides that I have mentioned in Bunhill Fields, some of which were continued and remain in use to this day, but others were left off and which I confess I mention with some reflection, being converted into other uses or built upon afterward, the dead bodies were disturbed, abused, dug up again, some even before the flesh on them was perished from the bones, and removed like dung or rubbish to other places. Some of those which came within the reach of my observation are as follows. Number one, a piece of ground beyond Goswell Street near Mount Mill, being some of the remains of the old lines or fortifications of the city, 
where abundance were buried promiscuously from the parishes of Aldergate, Clerkenwell, and even out of the city. This ground, as I take it, was since made a physic garden, and after that has been built upon. Number two, a piece of ground just over the Black Ditch, as it was called then, at the end of Holloway Lane, in Shoreditch Parish. It has been since made a yard for keeping hogs and for other ordinary uses, but it is quite out of use as a burying ground. Number three, the upper end of Hand Alley in Bishopsgate Street, which was then a green field, and was taken in particularly for Bishopsgate Parish, though many of the carts out of the city brought their dead thither also, particularly out of St. All Hallows on the Wall. This place I cannot mention without much regret. It was, as I remember, about two or three years after the plague was ceased, that Sir Robert Clayton came to be possessed of the ground. It was reported, how true I know not, that it fell to the king for want of heirs, all those who had any right to it being carried off by the pestilence, and that Sir Robert Clayton obtained a grant of it from King Charles II. But however he came by it, certain it is that the ground was let out to build on, or built upon, by his order. The first house built upon it was a large fair house, still standing, which faces the street or way now called Hand Alley, which, though called an alley, is as wide as a street. The houses in the same row with that house, northward, are built on the very same ground where the poor people were buried, and the bodies on opening the ground for the foundations, were dug up, some of them remaining so plain to be seen that the women's skulls were distinguished by their long hair, and of others the flesh was not quite perished, so that the people began to exclaim loudly against it, and some suggested that it might endanger a return of the contagion, after which the bones and bodies, as fast as they came at them, were carried to another part of the same ground and thrown all together into a deep pit, dug on purpose, which now is to be known in that it is not built upon, but is a passage to another house at the upper end of Rose Alley, just against the door of a meeting-house which has been built there many years since, and the ground is palisadoed off from the rest of the passage in a little square. There lie the bones and remains of near two thousand bodies, carried by the dead carts to their grave in that one year. Number four. Besides this, there was a piece of ground in Moorfields, by the going on to the street, which is now called Old Bethlehem, which was enlarged much, though not wholly taken in on the same occasion. Number five. Stepney Parish, extending itself from the east part of London to the north, even to the very edge of Shoreditch Churchyard, had a piece of ground taken in to bury their dead close to the said churchyard, and which for that very reason was left open, and is since, I suppose, taken into the same churchyard. And they had also two other burying places in Spitalfields, one where since a chapel or tabernacle has been built for ease to this great parish, and another in Petticoat Lane. There were no less than five other grounds made use of for the parish of Stepney at that time, one where now stands the parish church of St. Paul, Shadwell, and the other where now stands the parish church of St. John's at Wapping, both which had not the names of parishes at that time, but were belonging to Stepney Parish. I could name many more, but these coming within my particular knowledge, the circumstance, I thought, made it of use to record them. 
From the whole, it may be observed that they were obliged in this time of distress to take in new burying grounds for most of the out-parishes for laying the prodigious numbers of people which died in so short a space of time. But why care was not taken to keep those places separate from ordinary uses so that the bodies might rest undisturbed, that I cannot answer for, and must confess I think it was wrong. Who were to blame, I know not. I should have mentioned that the Quakers had at that time also a burying ground set apart to their use, and which they still make use of, and they had also a particular dead cart to fetch their dead from the houses, and the famous Solomon Eagle, who, as I mentioned before, had predicted the plague as a judgment, and ran naked through the streets, telling the people that it was come upon them to punish them for their sins, had his own wife died the very next day of the plague, and was carried, one of the first in the Quaker's dead cart, to their new burying ground.